Some people call the book of Acts um, the story of the Holy Spirit because you see the early church beginning to grow despite persecution that comes in the form of uh, merchants that are out to get the church, other religions that are out to get the church, and then the church is infighting, so internal strife and external persecution, and yet households come to faith, and churches are planted in cities, and men and women reason together about the Old Testament and learn even more fully than they understood after listening to the teachings of Jesus, who he is, who he was, and who he is. So the gathering, which is what a church is, a church is not a building, the gathering begins with friendship, begins with reason that includes what the scripture says about God and about Christ and about humans. It begins with worship. They sang songs together. One of them, a lot of men and women don't like the singing part of church and um, the text that is most convicting to me when I don't feel like singing is that as Jesus left the Lord's Supper with his disciples the night before his horrible trial, they sang a hymn together. Men and women in the 40s and 50s, just a few decades or years after Jesus, um, after Jesus's earthly ministry, would, would sing together. They would gather together. They would take the Lord's Supper. They were often persecuted. In this particular chapter, we're going to see an example of thwarted persecution in what I think is kind of an interesting story. I want to point something out because it's beginning to happen in Acts chapter 18 and because it continues to plague us today in multiple ways. The early church had an inner circle problem. Did you know that? Did you know that there were times that people trusted one apostle over another? In 2 Corinthians, which is at least the third letter that Paul wrote, writes to the Corinthians, In chapter 11, he calls some of the other apostles super apostles, which is just as sarcastic then as it would be today. If I I was looking at your podcast list and there were a bunch of super pastors on there with thousands of people in their churches and I was in a bad mood, I might say, oh yeah, you listen to that super preacher. We actually don't even know who Paul was referring to either. We don't know if it's a sarcastic jab at other good apostles that the people were uh, pitting against one another, or if he's talking about false teachers. But what I want to point out is the church had to work that out. And it took time and energy. It took labeling of it. If you go to Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15, and then you look at the corresponding letters in the New Testament, you'll notice they had to work this out. They had to learn how to deal with not only men and women that had different gifts. We'll see that a little bit today. They also had to deal with different generations. So as newer gifted people came up through the church, it wasn't easy for James and for Peter to hear Paul. Because Paul, we think of Paul as, as, I think of Paul as pretty high up there, but he was later to the story than James and Peter. And then after Paul, we'll call Paul the second or the generation, then there are Priscilla and Aquila that we'll hear about today. They weren't as famous as Apollos, who might have been one of the super apostles Paul was talking about. And they had to work out what does it mean to have this gift amongst the generations. We work that out at the barn. We try and have as few inner circle moments as possible, and yet not everybody can know everything at every time. We're limited, and yet we have to get things done. That means we have challenging conversations like the early church. And the reason I'm pointing that out is the early church had that too, and yet the Spirit was kind and is kind. The Spirit comforted them, and it comforts us. We take time, and we discuss things, and pray, and then we have to get things done. One of my favorite things about this chapter is Paul completely loses his cool. 
and uh, swears that he's never going to talk to these people again. And then the Holy Spirit comforts him and he immediately begins talking to them again and spends a year and a half doing the very thing he swears he's not going to do because he was a human being and a little bit temperamental. And if you're tired of me telling you about Paul's temperamentalness, well, we'll get to another sermon series in the fall and I won't mention it as much. But in the book of Acts, the humanness of the characters is available to us on every page because God has a role to play for every single follower of him temperamental or not, gifted in an obvious way or gifted in more subtle ways. I'm not going to read all of chapter 18 today um, because a lot of different things happen, but I'm going to read the first 17 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. This tells us almost exactly when this happened because it's historically dated outside of the scriptures when the emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So that's backwards of how we often say it now. But Jews knew about the importance of having a Messiah. From Isaiah and from Zechariah and from Psalm 22 and other texts, they knew that there was going to be a Messiah. And so Paul's arguing with them, and so it's inverted in the way we think about it now. You know what I'm saying? So he's proving to them that this important part of your religion came, and it was this man, Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, which is another way of saying, I'm frustrated. I'm out. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So this is what Paul's nervous about. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you're ready for Paul to get stoned or beaten or reviled some more or something like that, right? But the Spirit gave him this dream in this particular place that he should stay, so he stayed. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, I'm picking up in verse 14, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, which is kind of interesting, but it gets better. And they drove them, and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So it's not a happy story in that someone gets beaten, but it is fascinating that the Roman ruler, so this is a colony of Rome, The city was destroyed, and then Rome restarted it. 
sending their retired soldiers there. That colony is being ruled by a man as a governor of a colony. And the Jews are beating their top leader just to try and get his attention so that he might throw Paul out of the city. And he ignores them. But what was bothering them so much was that he was saying Christ was Jesus. And yet what happens in this particular moment is not persecution. There's plenty of that in the book of Acts. What happens there is the Holy Spirit comforts Paul and had a longer term plan for the city of Corinth and for the house church that was beginning there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we hear about the people that Paul led to Christ, Crispus, who's mentioned here. Different author, different book, written at a different time, and yet totally connects. These three different families that believed that Christ was Jesus. And one thing that I want to point out here, the Holy Spirit comforting Paul, that is what the Holy Spirit does. You know that? It does other things, but it is the, the, the most attested to scripturally thing that the Holy Spirit does. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you sense the comfort of the Holy Spirit? No! Well, now you're praying like a psalmist. If you do, I'm so encouraged. And if you do not sense it, I strongly encourage you to pray for it. That's not why we have this text. We have this text because this is what happened to Paul. This is the Holy Spirit caring for and starting the Corinthian church. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is one of the most wonderful individualistic benefits of being a follower of Jesus, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's guiding the second generation. So Priscilla and Aquila, this is between 49 and 51 AD. So we know very specifically when the Corinthian church was planted and they get to learn near Paul. And this is not the huge crowds of the early chapters of the book of Acts. This is a small crowd. Those of you in the back won't be able to see, but they're, they're probably on the floor making tents, learning about how the Christ was Jesus. They're working together. They had to stop talking whenever they had to sell the tents They were doing their work. Then they would go and reason in the synagogues. And this is how God chose to grow and begin the Corinthian church. This is the second generation, or perhaps the third generation, if Paul's the second generation. And the reason I want to camp out on it for a second, ooh, pun not intended. A subtle tent-making joke. Is we do much of the work that God has called us to do where we find ourselves. Many of you work in the insurance industry, and when you're working, you are to be working, but when you're on break, when you're afterwards, when you're at a gathering that doesn't have to do with work, that's when we befriend people as followers of Jesus and end up becoming friends with them and sometimes talking about our faith. And if they are followers of Jesus, that's where we learn more about our own faith and about theirs. And we, st- we discuss the scriptures together in the places we find ourselves. Many of you are teachers. I hope July lasts forever for you who teach. And August is not a month of dread. And you find yourself in different spots in the summer. But as teachers, there's a rhythm to that. Some of you are not working, you're retired or 
um, you're out of work or you've decided to stay home with you ch- your children, you find yourself in different places. And the Holy Spirit has a role for all of us. And that role exists where we find ourselves. And I love this part of the book of Acts, though it doesn't read as dynamically as when Peter preached and thousands came to faith, because this is more of our life. You find yourself at playgrounds or hanging out with other teachers, enjoying the fact that it's the summer or talking with someone after you leave the Hartford at happy hour or dinner or whatever. And if they're a follower of Jesus, you get to encourage one another. If they're not a follower of Jesus, you're befriending them and getting to know them. And the Holy Spirit has a role for each of us where we find ourselves. Well, that's what's happening right now. And right after uh, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, we find out about Apollos. And I'm going to skip a couple of verses where, we, where Paul goes to Ephesus and he goes to Antioch and we hear just a little bit about uh, a vow he made with his hair. This might have been from number six if you want to study it. I have a huge study Bible. You could, you could kind of unpack this a little bit, but I'm going to skip from that to the next part because I want to talk about what it was like for the early church to deal with the second and then the third generation. Picking up in verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. This is one of the many times in this particular chapter that we know something about what's being discussed, but not everything. For those of you that are familiar with scriptures, that probably brings to mind two or three conclusions and like six or seven questions. Apollos knew something about the gospel of Jesus, but as far as Priscilla and Aquila and Paul could tell, there were a few things he needed to learn. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, this is back towards Corinth, this is the southern part of Greece, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Again, I don't know how well you know your Bible, but can you picture James? This is the brother of Jesus, not the apostle James or not the disciple James, and Peter, and Paul, and Mark. Remember, Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement about Mark. And Apollos, this third generation, very eloquent speaker. And Barnabas, and Lydia, that's the woman who sold purple goods and helped start the Philippian church. And Mary, and Silas, and Priscilla at dinner. Can you picture it? There's a lot of people. A couple of men, a couple of women from the multiple generations of the church sitting at dinner. They're going to laugh some. They're going to have some things to figure out. At some point, it's going to get a little intense because they're going to be quoting scripture and it's going to be like, who's the best at quoting scripture about this particular thing that we're discussing? Somebody's going to fall asleep because they all had regular jobs too. And then they you know, came to the dinner to figure th- things out like we often do at church. Almost all of our meetings seem to be at seven o'clock. And the reason is we rely on so many volunteer leaders at the church who are working all day They go home sometimes to change. Sometimes they don't have time to do that. And they come, we have to work some things out. So they probably laughed a little bit. They had some tough conversations. They're figuring out how to do elders and deacons, maybe trustees. They did some honest sharing. One of them falls asleep. They didn't always like each other, but because of the grace of Jesus, because they believed it was true, 
because the Holy Spirit was calling them to develop churches in every town, they worked it out. And I think Apollos had excellent hair. And I think it was annoying. And I'm saying that because of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 3 and what this says. And you go study those texts and you tell me. Maybe he didn't. But it seemed like he was so polished that it frustrated some of the people that were less polished. One of the things that you may or may not know about the Apostle Paul was that he wasn't very polished. He was preaching a sermon once and a young man fell asleep and fell out of a building. And part of the reason the young man fell asleep was the Apostle Paul's sermons were not as engaging as other people's. Paul says that in his letters. And so I think at that dinner party, it might be tough that this guy that's only been a follower of Jesus for two years with this perfect hair and great conclusions who has so much more public success gets to speak to the brother of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter, the rock of the church. And they have to work all that out. I'm very aware that our new intern is much closer in age to my daughter than to me. And he's very gifted. And I was sharing that with a friend and she said, but you're 12 because she's a few years older than me. And I realized like we have to work all this out together as a community, as a gathering of men and women that are trusting Jesus with different gifts and skills. We'll not always see eye to eye with one another who are wired very differently, but because of the grace of Jesus, we get to worship together. We get to serve our community together. We get to learn to get along and what to do when we can't just like the early church. So the second generation, including Apollos with the great hair, the Spirit is guiding them as the story spreads. It is an imperfect story. It sometimes reads in a way that isn't engaging and exciting to us. It goes through Ephesus and Corinth and Antioch and Galatia and Achaia, and Galatia and Achaia are regions, and then Rome. It's spreading through households. And I wonder, did you notice all the pieces just in Acts chapter 18 of Extant, historical, archaeological, and written evidence, three different categories of evidence that corroborate the story. Now, if we only have the book of Acts, then it looks like, you know, we got together and and very strangely decided to start a religion. And the reason I say very strangely is a lot of the extant evidence that we have makes these men and women look a little bit silly. Paul losing his temper, Paul speaking sarcastically in a vague way in 2 Corinthians 11, and, and I read it. He's totally being sarcastic. But did you notice all the points of historical evidence? Do you know what a proconsul is? I can't remember. And not once has anything that Luke wrote about the governmental systems all around the Mediterranean been anything but confirmed in our archaeology. And that doesn't matter to some of you. You're like, that's not why I came to church this morning, to hear about archaeological evidence around the Mediterranean. But it's amazing. It's gotten to the point that historians begin to take for granted the accuracy of the book of Acts. Non-Christian historians. Because we continue to uncover that Luke was right. Yeah, Gallio was the governor of that province in the time that Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. Yeah, that's true. Oh, okay. And they have Greek inscriptions and Latin inscriptions. We have Luke talking about Paul, and then we have a letter that Paul wrote probably 10 years later that references the same people and the same stories in a fully corroborating way. 
And you're like, that's only kind of compelling to me. Well, I think what happens sometimes is we read the Gospels and we read the miracles of Jesus and some part of our brain and perhaps our, our false selves sets those aside as like, well, that was Jesus. And it's an interesting story. And I'm not positive what I think about all those miracles or the supernatural claims. But then we have the book of Acts, which bridges for us Jesus's earthly ministry, and then the formation of the early church and what we now know about theology from the letters that Paul and Peter and James and Jude and others wrote. And it's so sometimes mundanely historical that it doesn't feel that interesting to read it, and yet this is where all the evidential proof, not all, a significant amount of the evidential proof of the scriptures lies. Claudius was an actual emperor. Gallio was an actual proconsul. Claudius, or, uh, Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus are people that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 years later. And he's talking about them here in Acts. And the reason that it's sometimes tedious for us to read is because the book of Acts doesn't read like a novel with some kind of period to the end of the story because we are the 29th chapter of Acts. Acts ends with chapter 28, and it ends with kind of a dot, dot, dot. We don't find out what happens to Paul. We don't know how and when and where the church continued to spread from the scriptures. And the reason that Luke did that is for us. We are the continuing church. We are supposed to continue to make much of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves us and likes us. Because of Jesus, we're reconciled to the Father and we have the Holy Spirit where we find ourselves. We are the next chapter. And so the Spirit guides the second and the third generation as the story spreads and the gathering is strengthened. And the gathering is strengthened for two reasons. Because of the Holy Spirit and because it was true. If none of this is true, Paul is an incredibly learned, somewhat angry man that we have a lot of historical evidence of some things that he said. If it's true, then the offer of real life is so sweet. Last week and the week before, I've talked about how the historical and evidential aspects of the Christian faith are among the most comforting to me. And the reason is this, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And I love that. And the book of Acts connects me to all these regular humans, either that who had met Jesus or met someone who had met Jesus. And their belief was based on evidence and real people. And so abundant life on a good day is a word that I understand. And on the days that I'm more confused by the world or by my false self or by my fatigue, the book of Acts is so encouraging to me. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that it is encouraging to you to see the truth, the veracity of the scriptures. I was thinking yesterday about idols, you know, like you do. You know what an idol is scripturally? It's both a literal problem if you set something up that you worship, and it's also a metaphorical problem in the New Testament. That Anything that if we didn't have it, we'd be afraid. We couldn't let go of it. Something that we loved more than we're supposed to love it. This gets real tricky with the things we are supposed to love that we're not supposed to idolize like our spouse or our job or our children. Good gifts we're not supposed to idolize. And I was thinking about idols. And the reason that it's interesting to think about idols is I have the 
story of the book of Acts of the men and the women who learned to appropriate this language in a metaphorical way in order to live lives of life. We look out for the things where our security actually is because the gospel is true. We're nervous about the things that if we were to lose them, we would lose sleep over that. Or perhaps the things we spend money on effortlessly. Those are some ways of thinking through idols. And I was thinking about those yesterday. And I was praying to the Lord, Lord, do you need to reveal to me some of my idolatry? And the reason that I was doing that is because I believe it's true. That God sent his son because he loves us. And that because of the work he did, we're reconciled to him and are brought into union with Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit, which leads us to lead lives of life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you look at the evidence and consider trusting God through Jesus for the internal peace of the gospel, for the guidance into dynamic purpose, God has a role and a purpose for you. And the eternal security. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope this message encourages you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I I hope that you consider the evidence. Perhaps especially in the book of Acts. And if you're considering the gospel, it is as easy as Jesus, I trust you with my heart and with my decisions. And you can say it silently. We're Presbyterians. It's between you and God. We are. And the reason is because the Christ was Jesus. Apollos teaches them at the end. Paul's teaching them that in Corinth at the beginning. That's where our hope and our faith and our guidance into purpose and our internal peace and our eternal security come from. You pray with me? Father in heaven, you are mighty to save. You displayed that over and over and over again in your pursuit of men and women before the Exodus and then in your freeing of your people and your calling them to live lives of life and to bless others. And especially in the sending of your son Jesus. You show us and show us and show us that you are indeed powerful and good, right and true, mighty to save us from ourselves into the with God life of joy and peace and righteousness. Father in heaven, would you bless us as we sing that truth? For those of us that are following you, would you comfort our hearts as you comforted Paul's? For those that are considering this gospel, draw near to them and help them in their consideration that they might call you Lord and receive and enjoy that new life. Amen.